We're in Exodus 2, so if you have a Bible, you could pull that out, please, and turn with me there. And if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those blue ones in the seat underneath, uh, underneath the seat in front of you, and we're on page 26 in those Bibles, page 26. Uh, we're a couple weeks into uh, looking at the story of the people of God in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. A question to get us going, and you can file this away, and you'll see it come up in the story that we think about today. Have you ever done something in a flash of anger that you later came to regret? Like in the last hour. <laughs> we'll find a very famous case of something like that in our passage this morning. I hope it will encourage all of us with what God can do even when we sin like that. In chapter 1 of Exodus, we saw that God's people are in Egypt, and despite their presence in Egypt, a place they didn't want to be, they are multiplying in a way consistent with what God had promised them. But there's a problem still that they are in Egypt and that they're under uh, Egyptian slavery. And then in chapter 2, we felt at the start a, a moment perhaps of hope in that there is a baby born whose name was Moses, and he was preserved in such a way that it seems really evident God's going to do something through this man. Maybe, just maybe, he's going to be the deliverer, the rescuer who would bring the people of God out of Egypt and into the promised land. With that in mind, let's look at verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. On first glance, I think, especially in light of the fact that last week we saw his birth, and then we see him when he's weaned, making his way to the palace where he was raised uh, by the Egyptians. It sort of sounds like in the very next paragraph that maybe he's just reached the point of 18 years old, and he's now in adulthood and he casually goes on a stroll, heads out of the palace, walks around, and just so happens to come across the Israelites. And then in a moment of irrational rage, he commits murder. I think when we first read this passage and just glance through it, that's sort of what it sounds like. But there's a lot more here than meets the eye. Notice, for example, that two times in verse 11, it uses the phrase, his people, his people. Now remember, he's been raised by Egyptians, and yet here he aligns himself with Israel, not with Egypt. It turns out that if we read this closely, this wasn't a casual stroll. Moses didn't just happen upon the Israelites. 
He's not an impulsive teenager, we might say. No, Moses made a deliberate self-conscious decision to leave the privileges of the palace to head to the slums of the Jews. There's enough clues in the story that we can see that that was his decision. However, later in the Bible, other passages make it really clear that that's what had happened. Take, for example, Hebrews chapter 11. It says this, by faith, Moses, and notice the phrase, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. It seems that before Moses headed out of the palace that day, he had made a decision to act in some way, shape, or form on behalf of his people. He had decided, I, after 40 years, he was 40 at this point, after 40 years, I am tired of living in the palace being considered an Egyptian. I'm going to go out with my people. He predetermined I'm going to do something. He resolved to walk away from the riches of Egypt and the privileges of the palace for the good of being among his people. And it was at that point that he came across one of his own being beaten. Then he sprung into action. Exodus 2 is careful to say he looked around to make sure no one was watching. That detail is important. And then he took matters in his own hands, literally. He took matters in his own hands by slaying that Egyptian and burying him in the sand. Now, as you can imagine, both commentators and us common Christians alike tend to have a heyday here and tend to have lots of arguments over whether this was an appropriate action for Moses to take or not. And yet, I think all of that is rather silly because the, the details of the story make it very plain. He, he wasn't supposed to have done this. Moses knew he wasn't supposed to have done this. I mean, why look around to see if anybody else is watching if you think what you're doing is entirely appropriate? We all know that. And why bury the body in the sand if your actions were entirely justified and legal? And furthermore, as we'll see in the story in a few minutes, why run away when people find out? The author is very deliberately telling us, Moses might have sought to do something good here for someone, but he did so in an evil way. Now let's read on together, verse 13. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? So going out the next day, Moses again came across another conflict. But this time it wasn't a conflict between an Egyptian and a Jew, but rather between two Jews. History very faithfully teaches us that whenever there are a people oppressed under violence, it's just a matter of time before they begin to be violent 
among themselves. Seeing that exact thing, Moses again sprung into action. It's clear this is a personality trait or a part of his character. He sees people in need and he moves toward them rather than being indifferent, putting blinders on, and walking away. Seeking to make peace, though, Moses instead will get a response that left him without peace. Look at the next verse, verse 14. He, that's the man Moses was seeking to correct, he answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. And he thought, surely the thing is known. That unnamed man was right, wasn't he? No one made Moses ruler. No one appointed him judge. And apparently, the guy that Moses had saved had intervened when the Egyptian was beating him. Apparently, he didn't keep his mouth shut. Apparently, he went home and told everybody, you're never going to believe what happened. Pharaoh's grandson... Moses was now known as a murderer, and a murderer not merely of anyone, but a a murderer of an Egyptian, and not just a murderer of an Egyptian, but a murderer of an Egyptian because he was beating a Hebrew. To the Egyptians, nothing was more grotesque than a slave. Part of Moses' formal education in the palace would have been, and there is lots of record of what they were taught, he would have been taught slaves are subhuman. They're nothing. They're merely animals. But he didn't believe that. And so he intervened. Why? Why did Moses intervene? Well, part of the story certainly is what we've already looked at from Hebrews. It was that by faith, he had some idea that living as one that he is not was inconsistent with what God would want. And so he set out to serve, to help, to live, to be among the Jews. He was self-consciously aware. God delivered me from certain death as a child, and I'm supposed to be with them, the slaves, not with the Egyptians. Apparently, he had some sense of that. And yet, later scriptures also tell us even more. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is giving his famous speech right before he was killed, Stephen makes this comment that Moses supposed his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. If you want to read that later, it's Acts chapter 7 verse 24. What Stephen's saying is, Moses had the desire to rescue the people of God, 
And he thought in so doing here that this would clue them in. Now God is going to act. Now God has heard their prayers. Now God is coming to rescue them. And he's going to be the one to do it. And yet, this sinful act of murder failed to start a salvific movement. You see, Moses' rash attempt to intervene did not win him the respect of his fellow Israelites, quite the opposite. They essentially say to him a phrase I imagine you have heard, you're not the boss of me. Now, it's easy to understand why that this man Moses was seeking to correct would have reacted like that, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Imagine you're slaving away as, an Egypt, as a Jewish person under Egyptian slavery, and perhaps rolling around the labor camps is the story of this infamous one, this one Jew who got away, and he got away because Pharaoh's daughter rescued him. And he's not a slave, he's rather living as one who's free, an adopted Egyptian. One Jew became Pharaoh's daughter. And so this one, instead of living in the slums, he grew up in the palace. Instead of slave labor, he got a posh education. Instead of slavery, he was free. Instead of rags, he had riches. But then one day, this privileged latecomer shows up with his cape on to save his fellow Jews. And in that moment, he killed him. Therefore, this would send shockwaves throughout the camp, causing everybody to wonder, what's the backlash going to be? Not on Moses, on us. The outsider was trying to become an insider through this ridiculous murderer. They wanted none of it. Instead of garnering attention as one who God would send to be the rescuer, Moses instead had made the problem even worse. Beloved, we live in an era today in which the very same thing is happening as it relates to issues of justice. Social justice is the rage today. Moses sought justice when he killed the Egyptian, but he did so unjustly. Do you you see that in the passage? A zeal for justice wrongly executed will never accomplish Godly ends. Anyone who hears of it won't understand. You can't do heaven's work with hell's methods. Any pursuit of quote-unquote social justice that is accomplished by injustice is actually no justice at all. Christians are, of course, people called by God to be concerned with the plight of others. We, of all people, ought not be going through life like this, completely self-absorbed and unaware of what others are facing. And yet, 
we must be very careful not to get on the social justice cancel culture bandwagon because all it's really seeking to do is flip oppressor and oppressed. And in the end, that will do nothing good. It's merely sowing the seeds of later, deeper problems. There has to be better ways to bring about good for those in need than that. We must be more circumspect, more thoughtful, more godly. This version of justice put before us today will not result in real lasting societal change because it doesn't honor God who promises ultimate justice. Now, eventually this news that Moses had done this made its way to the palace. The palace where Moses had been treated so well. Look at verse 15. When Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, a lot of you know the story. I'm thrilled there's people here who don't. What a gift to be able to share this with people every Sunday who are hearing it for the first time. This is a wonderful thing we have together, brothers and sisters. But many of you have heard it. Would you pretend you don't know the rest of the story for a moment? Think about how horrific this is. We're now a long ways from the hope that maybe, just maybe, Moses would be the deliverer. That whole dream has been shattered. He's not a deliverer, he's a fugitive. See him sitting by that well with nothing? Oh, how the mighty has fallen. Not only have God's people remained under Egyptian oppression for 40 years since Moses was born. Not only that, now the would-be deliverer has made his own exodus out of Egypt, leaving everybody behind and he's hiding in the wilderness. Things have definitely gone from bad to worse. Verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Rule, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? Apparently, this problem with the shepherds, probably these gals drew the water and then rough men came and took the drawn water for themselves and their own flock. That's probably the circumstances here but they show up more quickly. Apparently, they didn't have to draw water twice. Dad is like, what is going on? That's not the question I'm asking. Dad, why didn't you intervene? But that's putting our own culture on top. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. Verse 18, 
how is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian. Apparently he dresses, speaks, appears to be Egyptian. So now he doesn't fit with the Egyptians and he doesn't fit with the Jews. He's got nobody. An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. There are some encouraging things about Moses we see in this third story, this third intervention. Quickly notice them. Let me, let me point out three. First, this is the third time Moses intervened on behalf of people in need. He's clearly a man moved with compassion toward those who are being taken advantage of by others. He's a man of action. He doesn't sit around when he notices a need. He's not absorbed in himself, even in this lowest possible of moments. He's not indifferent to others. These are very, very positive traits. And this story is not here to tell us, you be Moses. And, and yet, we've got plenty of other passages teaching us that it's good to help others. That that's part of loving people. We need men like Moses. Now second, notice that this third time, there's, there's no hint in the story that Moses sinned. There's no indicator that he'd done anything wrong at all. Whatever he said or did to these bully shepherds, apparently, the narrator's telling us, apparently it was entirely appropriate. Moses seems to have learned his lesson. Rather than kill him, them, he simply ran them off. This is progress. No more murder, just shooing. Good job, Moses. Now, finally, notice in verse 19, a little word. The word even, even. There's so much in that little word. These seven daughters who came to draw water were impressed that Moses ran off the shepherds, but they were astonished that he drew water for the animals. That'll leave you scratching your head unless you understand that culturally at this point in time, women drew water men did not. This was lowly, demeaning, beneath a man kind of work. But not for Moses. Moses was becoming a servant, happy to do things that appeared culturally to be beneath him. He's doing, in fact, what the sevens father didn't go out to do and help with. There's a lot here to commend that we see that's well, that's good about Moses. So how would these seven daughters respond? In particular, how would their father respond? Well, look at verse 20. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Moses was content to dwell with the man 
And he gave Moses his daughter, Zephorah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses fled the wilderness into the wilderness where the semi-nomadic group of people called the Midianites lived. He went hoping merely to survive Pharaoh's wrath. Yet in God's kindness, he found not only somewhere to live, he found a wife. He found a son. Christian, nothing, not even Moses' sin could stop the preservation of this man's life. Because nothing can thwart the will of God. Not even sin. Nevertheless, the fact remains, Moses has fallen so, so, so far. From this early intervention of God in his life, such that certain death was averted, to being given the opportunity of a lifetime, not slavery, but an incredible education and opportunity. Moses has squandered it all. His actions in one moment of anger have put him on the outside, outside his people, outside the Egyptians. He's living out in the sticks, far removed from the people of God. If the chapter ended here, how tragic would this story be? Moses' circumstances appear to offer no hope for the rescue of the people of God at all. None. They're worse than when Exodus 1.1 began. He had his chance to help, but he squandered it. So much so now he's the one living in exile. It seems that Moses needs another rescue of his own. How many lives does this guy have? He's like a cat. While he's making babies in Midian, the Jews remain slaves in Egypt. But beloved, never, ever, ever forget, nothing can thwart the will of God. God has said, I will deliver my people, and they will make it to the land that I have for them, and they will be a people that will bless eventually all the people groups on earth. Nothing can stop God. And yet, when we look at life horizontally, through the ordinary circumstances, there are many days in which it appears Everything is stopping God. Thankfully, there's the last paragraph. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. Now remember, this is the king who had put them into slavery. So if you were a slave and one king had made you a slave, 
and that king dies, what are you hoping for? When there's political opportunism, this is the moment. Maybe, 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 maybe we'll get out of this horrific situation now. They're hoping God will intervene. They're hoping now's the time we can leave this God-forsaken place. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. The cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. God knew. What glorious verses. Like the dawn bursting forth after the bleakest of night, this paragraph provides hope. New life is on the way. God heard the groaning of His people and God readied Himself to act. If you read that paragraph closely, you'll notice there's a very deliberate fourfold repetition of the people crying out to God for help and God responding as only He can. God groaned. They, they groaned. God heard. They cried out. God remembered. They cried, God saw, they groaned, God knew. Church, what the passing of time, what the passing of the king, and what the passing away of that Egyptian that Moses had murdered could not accomplish, prayer did. Prayer can do what nothing else God listens to the prayers of His people. When they cried out to God, and that aligned with the will of God in His moment to act, then things began to change. Prayer does what nothing else can do. Do you believe that? We're being pressed in this story to see it. I want to encourage you to be a person of prayer. I want to encourage us that we would be a people of prayer. What Moses could not do in his walking away, and that was heroic to leave what he left, and in his identification with the people, I mean, that was a godly thing to say, I'm leaving the palace for the slums. But then he went, he went his own way, seeking to do it himself. He should have walked among them, joined them, and led them to pray. May we be people who pray. I think verses 23 to 25 are among the most wonderful verses in this whole book of Exodus because they're overflowing with this beautiful vision of who God is, how He acts, what He's like, what moves Him to act on our behalf. 
Notice the verbs. Notice in verse 24, it says that God remembered His covenant. Now, beloved, that doesn't mean that God forgot or that it somehow slipped His mind or He got busy with some other planet. It means that this is the moment when God chose to act. It's a human way of speaking so that we can understand. But this is the time that God resolved. It's now. I'm going to do what no one else can do for my people. God heard the prayers of His people, and we'll see next week that God chose to act for them. Notice verse 25, another verb, God saw. Now, God doesn't have eyes, so it's not like He somehow became aware of what was going on with them, and He physically saw them. Again, it's a way of speaking so that we can understand. But think of the difference between the end of this section that we've looked at and the beginning. The same verb is used for Moses. Moses saw, and Moses' seeing led to Moses' sinning, but God saw. And when God sees, God's seeing leads to His saving. This is who God is. This is how God acts. This is still what God's doing today. His people pray, and those prayers rise up to God. And God, in His time and in His way, God acts. God remembers. God sees. God saves. He's done it for so many of us in the room. Amen? So how do we apply this passage about Moses' downfall? and God's recollection of His promises. I've tried to give you some ways as we've moved along in the text, but now that we've made our way through the whole story, what do we do with this? I would commend to you that the big lesson to take away from these verses is that God will deliver His people in His time, in His way. God doesn't need us to take up actions that are sinful to try to accomplish what God's going to do. He's able. He doesn't need us taking matters into our own hands. Moses had a good desire, but initially he pursued it wrongly. So Christian, in the same way, I want to encourage you, don't labor for godly ends with ungodly means. Don't labor for godly things with ungodly means. Instead, pray. Trust God. And if opportunity presents itself to practically do something that doesn't require sinning, then go for it. But until then, keep praying and keep waiting and keep trusting. Don't make the early error Moses made. Cry out to God for help. 
Ask God to be faithful to the things He's promised. And eventually, in His time, in His way, He will act. Moses had a good desire, but apparently it wasn't the right time. Another application from this we can draw is that when we are in struggle, we also have to wait. It took Moses 40 years in the palace of development. We'll find in the book of Exodus, it took another 40 years out in the wilderness in Midian. And it's only in the last 40 years of his life that Moses will act and lead in a way that God blesses and rescues his people. I'm really, really, really bad at math, but that's two years of preparation for every one year of contribution. Eighty years of development, forty years of leadership. For a church that leans young, And in a culture that despises anything but the youngest of youth, we would do well to hear that out. Probably your most substantial contributions, young people, are not going to be while you're young. Because it's when you're young that you kill people. (laughs) Obviously, I'm being facetious, but you understand the point. You have to be chiseled into the person who has the character that can withstand the weight of being used by God such that you don't get big-headed. That only comes with time. So give yourself fully in contribution to whatever you can at whatever age you are. But your usefulness expands over time. It does not decrease. Those of you who are actually the age that I look, (laughs) your usefulness to God in your 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s is not decreasing. It is increasing. Even if your energy is lower, understand that here at this church, among these people, you are loved, you are valued, and we so long to draw from your wisdom. Church, make no mistake, God will deliver his people in his time, in his way. If Moses' social justice debacle didn't derail God's plan, then brother or sister, neither will your next debacle. Whatever you have done that you hope no one else knows of, 
That thing, Christian, does not disqualify you from being used by God for good. If Moses can murder and be forgiven and still be used by God, whatever that thing is that you have done, if you will repent of your sin, rejoice in the grace of God that's yours in Christ, you may in fact be more useful than you were before that thing that was sinful. Because now you'll even more richly and deeply appreciate the grace of God that's yours. Now don't misunderstand me, that's not an excuse and license to go do it again. It is rather an encouragement to marvel at the grace of God. God will forgive Moses and use him. And this strand of rash, brash reaction remains in Moses. It will cost him dearly later in his life. And yet God will work through him. And Christian, God will work through you. If you don't know this one who can forgive like that, this deliverer, this rescuer, his name is Jesus. Unlike Moses, when Jesus saw injustice, he didn't sin by committing murder. Instead, he allowed himself to be murdered. Because in that death, he took upon himself all the sins of all people who had ever come to know Jesus Christ. He died in their place in order that he could then, on the third day, rise in their place, providing life and peace and forgiveness, union with him. Friend, if you don't know him, his name is Jesus, and the offer of this gospel stands. Speaking of standing, would you stand with me and let's pray. Would you take a moment and interact with the Lord about what we've talked about this morning? God, we as a church confess today that we believe that your character seen in this passage is true, that this is who you are, and that this this is, although in different contexts, not leading us out of slavery in Egypt, but continuing to lead us out of sin and into not the land of Israel, but preparing us for the ultimate promised land, heaven with you. God, we thank you that you see, that you remember, that you act. Forgive us today for taking matters in our own hands. 
And we thank you that your word has taught us that you will act on behalf of the good of your people in your time, in your way. I pray that would renew in us a confidence and a patience in suffering. I pray it would motivate our praying and infuse us with wonder at what you can do. Thank you, God, for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.